today we're talking about following Jesus. Uh, whenever, whenever I was in seminary, I've, I went to school at Baylor, and uh, our seminary is right on the edge of campus. And right on the edge of campus, they have this trail that goes around the entire campus of Baylor. It's called the Bear Trail. It's two and a quarter miles of crushed granite where everyone would run, jog, walk their dogs. And, and as, as, as a graduate student there, sometimes you just see crazy things. I think that's just the nature of being on a college campus. And uh, one of the things I saw that caught my eye and that stuck with me all these years was, was a young man who would regularly walk around the Bear Trail, walk around campus. And while he would walk around campus, he would carry over his shoulder this massive cross. I mean, th this was no small, light thing. It was massive, probably twice as tall as he was, very heavy. And I never stopped to ask him why he did it. I didn't, didn't know, and it could have been for many reasons. It could have been that maybe he was trying to do some type of penance for his sins and not realizing that Christ has done that for us. It might have been that maybe this was just a tool for, for witnessing and a conversation starter. I, I, I really don't know. But that's always stuck with me, and it stuck with me for a particular reason. Maybe not the reason he wanted. It stuck with me because as I would watch him go around campus with this cross, I noticed what he put at the base of the cross. In order to drag this massive cross around the campus, this young man ended up putting wheels on the cross. So it'd be able to not drag it across the crushed granite, I guess make it possible. But it stuck with me for this reason. It stuck with me because I felt like this is almost a parable of American and Western Christianity. That we want to carry a cross. We want to follow Jesus, but we want to do it with ease. We don't want the friction that it would cost. We want Jesus, but we want Jesus plus. We want Jesus, but we want Jesus plus riches. We want Jesus, but we want Jesus plus leisure or Jesus plus success or Jesus plus our dreams. Oftentimes what we want in our life is we want Jesus plus our desires. But the book of 1 John tells us that the world and all of its desires are passing away. And so when we look at our passage today in Luke chapter 9, the passage really answers two questions for us. It answers the question, who is this Jesus that we are to follow? But then it answers the question of what does it cost to follow Jesus? So who is this Jesus that we follow and what does it cost to follow this Jesus? Let's answer those two questions. First of all, who is this Jesus? And we see this in verses 18 through 22 in our text. While Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, others still uh, another one of the ancient prophets who've come back. And Jesus said, But you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised again on the third day. There were many ideas and many different 
pictures and many different guesses about who Jesus was. Earlier in the chapter, we see King Herod hearing these stories about Jesus and asking the question for himself, who is this man? Some people said that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead, but Herod said, I've killed John the Baptist. Other people said, well, it must be that Jesus is Elijah or one of the other great prophets come back. They believe that Jesus was this, this eschatological end of the world figure who is going to bring about this great change, this great movement of God. They had a high view of Christ. And when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? That was the answer they gave. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the other prophets. But then Jesus turned to them and he asked them, who do you say that I am? And it did not take Peter long to stand and to speak for the group. And he said, we believe that you are God's Messiah. We believe that you are the Christ. And whenever we hear Peter say that, we realize that that was from God. In the book of Matthew chapter 16, there's this parallel story. And Jesus says, you didn't figure this out on your own, Peter. You're right. I am the Messiah. But we also have to ask the question, what did Peter mean when he said that Jesus is God's Messiah? And we realize that Jesus and the disciples had a different understanding of what that meant. Whenever Peter said that you are God's Messiah, that you are the anointed one, that you are the Christ, Peter had it in his mind that Jesus was this figure sent by God to save not just individuals, but the kingdom of Israel. We see this in the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 6. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, uh, this is after Jesus was crucified, after he was buried, after he rose from the dead. This is after he revealed himself to the disciples. And Jesus then spent 40 days with the disciples, teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. I imagine maybe he was already being lifted up, and the disciples were like, Jesus, Jesus, are you going to restore this earthly kingdom of Israel now? Like, even after 40 days with the resurrected Lord, they still didn't quite get it. They still expected Jesus to run the Romans out of town, to set up a throne in the capital of Jerusalem and to rule over Israel as a new king. They still just didn't understand it. And I think it's very easy for all of us to look at the disciples and say, how did you miss this? But at the same time, I think we miss it just like the disciples do. And what we do is just like the disciples, we begin to put all of our earthly hopes and dreams on the shoulders of Christ. We, we crucify Jesus on a cross of partisanship and self-justification. And we find that people today like to use Jesus to make their political points. They like to use Jesus to justify their actions. And I had this thought while I was meditating on that this this week. I had this thought that if our understanding of Jesus only reinforces 
our agenda and he does not correct us of our sin, there's a very good chance that we're using Jesus just like the disciples were. Let me say that again. If our understanding of Jesus only reinforces our desires and our agenda and he does not correct us of our sin, then there's a very good chance that we're using Jesus, that he is not our king, but he is just our pawn. Jesus did not come to be a pawn. Jesus came as a king. He came as the Messiah. He came as the Christ. And then he says, Peter, you're right. I am God's Messiah, but let me show you and let me teach you the type of Messiah that God has sent me to be. And we see that Jesus explains his work in verses 21 and 22. It says, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. I wonder if that was because they were a little off in their understanding of what it meant to be God's Messiah. He said, don't tell anybody this. And then he says this in verse 22. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Jesus was saying, yes, I am God's Messiah, but I am not the Messiah that you want. I have not come to wear a crown, but I have come to carry a cross. I have come to redeem a people for God by being a sacrifice for their sins. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where Peter gets it. He says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. First John chapter 2, we read this earlier in our service. He himself, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There will be a time. When Jesus comes back and he wears the crown, there will be a time where Jesus comes back and he defeats enemies. That is his second coming. But his first coming, he did not come with a crown but a cross, and he came to create and to make himself a people. And the only way that God could have a people is if those people were a righteous people. And the only way that we could be righteous is if he took our sins away. The doctrinal word, the theological term for this is what we call substitutionary atonement. That Christ on the cross took our sins. And when we repent and believe in him, he places his righteousness on us. There's an old book by a guy named Josh McDowell. Anyone remember Josh McDowell? He had this book called uh, More Than a Carpenter where he was trying to explain this doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement. And he tells a story, and this, this is going to date the book because someone got a speeding ticket, and it was like 100 bucks. So this is how old the story is. It's a lot more than that. Don't ask me how I know. Um, <clears throat> so there's a story, this young lady in California driving down the road, speeding. She gets pulled over written a citation, and she has to go to court. 
When the young lady goes to court, the judge asks her, are you guilty or are you not guilty? And she says, I, I'm guilty. Like there's, <laughs> there's no getting around it. I was, I was speeding. The judge then looks down at her from, from his lifted space, and he says, well, that is going to be $100 fine or 10 days in jail, and he closes the case. Then what shocked the court was when that judge stood up He took off his robe and he came down to the young lady. He took out his wallet and he laid $100 on the table for her to pay the fine. And someone said, well, what's going on here? Why did the judge do that? And the reason the judge did this is because the young lady that he had just convicted was also his daughter. And it's a picture of what God has done for us, that we broke God's law. We had this debt that we could not pay, and there is no doubt that we are all guilty of breaking God's commands. God, in order to be a righteous judge, could not just say, well, you're just forgiven, because there was a debt that had to be paid. Knowing that we could not pay the debt, the judge, our God, stepped down from his high position. He took off his royal, righteous glory and laid it aside, and he paid our debt. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Who do you say that Jesus is? That if Jesus turned to you and Jesus looked you in the eyes and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? How would you answer? Jesus, I kind of use you as a pawn. I use you to justify my actions. I use you to make my political points, but that is about as far as my faith goes. Do you say, I have nothing to do with this Jesus? Or do you look to Jesus as your only hope in life and death, as your righteousness. Jesus came to be God's Messiah, laying aside his crown, taking up the cross to die for us. This is a turning point in the book of Luke. Chapter 9 is a turning point where later on in the book it says that Jesus turned his face and set it towards Jerusalem, that Christ was determined to follow the Father's plan and to sacrifice his life on the cross on our behalf. That's who we follow. One who set his face towards the cross. What does it cost to follow this Jesus? Verses 23 through 27, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus said, I am going to suffer. I am going to die. I am going to be rejected. And if you want to follow me, then you need to be willing to do this also daily, to be rejected, to be denied, to be the outcast. Oftentimes I'll tell my kids and I remind them, say, kids, you need to remind yourselves that you are going to be weird in this world that the standards that you want to live by, that the truths that we hold dear are not the truths and are not the standards of this world. And when we live them out, the world's not going to like us. 
Jesus said, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. He tells us what we need to do, what it looks like, what it costs to follow him. He says in verse 23 that if we want to follow him, one of the things that we need to do is we need to deny ourselves. What does this mean? What does it mean to deny ourselves? This is, this is the cross with wills. This is, I want Jesus plus this other stuff. This is, I want Jesus, but I want my desires. How would we fill in these statements? I could be happy if. I could be content if. I will know I've arrived if. I will know I've been successful if. This statement of Jesus of saying deny yourselves is busting the wheels off of the cross and say this is too much for you to bear alone. You have to trust me. You have to walk with me. And one of my questions that I want to ask you, and as we go to our community groups throughout the week, one of the questions that we're going to be answering with one another is what is our plus? What is our desire in our life that competes with the supremacy of Christ? And Jesus said, is that that we have to deny? Why do we have to deny these things? In part, we have to deny them because when we hold on to those desires in our life, what we're trying to do is we're trying to hold on to control of our life. And if we want to follow Jesus, we're saying, God, I don't have control. I, I, uh, I write my sermons in my garage, um, and in my garage on the wall, I was writing this, and I, and I looked up and I saw some of our fishing poles. And it reminded me of last weekend. Last weekend, uh, Watsons know how to party hard, uh, so we went for Labor Day, and um, we went on a little vacation to Belton, Texas. I know, crazy people, right? Um, and uh, we went down there. There's a little Airbnb on the, on the banks of the Nolanville Creek, I guess it is. Uh, and, and just don't, like, confuse yourself. The Nolan Creek that goes through Belton goes through Colleen first. And I don't know why people think they can swim in it and Belton and not Colleen. Uh, we know what goes in there. Uh, but anyways, we were, we were out there on the banks of the creek, and we were having a good time. We were out there with my nieces and nephews, and I have, like, I have like a crop of three- and four-year-old nephews. There's like five. I feel like there's, I don't know, I'm not counting on right now, but like, think of like five of them. And they're all there, and all of them wanted to fish. So when I came out there, I decided, all right, y'all want to fish? I'll bring my fishing poles. I went and bought me some, some new stoppers and some new hooks and some new lures and all, all that good stuff. Bought me some of that super bait. And I went out there with my three-year-old, my four-year-old nephews, my four-year-old son, and we started fishing. Now, if you know kids this age, you know what they like to say? They like to say, I want to do it. Or if you're the three-year-old nephew, I do it. Like, they just want to do it themselves. They want to have the control. They want to have the independence. And so when we were fishing out there in Nolan Creek, they wanted to cast the line out into the water on their own. Have you ever, you ever went fishing with a four-year-old? Like when, when a four-year-old casts a line and they have control of that pole, that, that, that rod and reel, you don't know where the line's going to go. 
you, you know where it's not going to go. It's not going to go in the water. We had lines tangled in trees behind us, above us, in front of us, and the roots on the other side of the creek. I had to cut a hole in my father-in-law's shorts because there was a, we couldn't get it out of there. It was a mess. Why? Because they wanted control. They wanted control. And this is just this illustration of us and our lives. We are all like those three and four-year-old nephews. And we look at God and we say, I want control. I want my desires and my dreams, and I want to chase after them, and I want to see them fulfilled. And just as my nephews tangled that line and hung that line and destroyed that line, so we tangle our lives. We knot them up into a rat's nest that can't get untangled. That's what happens when we are in control. And what we need, we need God to take the pole and like to cast it for us. When Jesus said, I want you to deny yourselves, he's saying, I want you to crucify those desires and dreams on the cross because they can't sit on the throne with me. Don't forget that our God is a jealous God and our God does not share his throne with anyone or anything. And that includes our dreams and our desires. Daily, we have to deny ourselves. Daily, he says, we have to pick up our cross. And what did Jesus mean when he said we have to take up our cross? I think he could have meant two things. One, it can be the whole idea that the world is going to reject us. If it rejected him, it will reject us. It can mean that, but it can also mean something else. And I think they can both be true. Crucifixion, going to the cross, was a Roman form of torture, punishment, and death penalty. It was the Roman way of showing everybody who was in control. Even the thieves and the murderers who went forward to crucifixion had to carry their own cross. Why did the Romans make you carry your own cross? It was like their final way of saying, you will submit to us. It was their way of humiliating the person being crucified. Whenever Jesus said that we daily have to take up our cross, what he is saying is daily you have to be willing to to submit to me. Daily, you have to be willing to pursue my commands in this life. And he said, you daily will take up your cross. This is not a, a, a forced, hateful thing that God is doing, but he's saying we do it willingly. We willingly submit to Jesus in our lives. Is there an area of your life and you realize and you know that you're not in the will of God, you're not obeying the commands of God? Jesus is saying, pick up your cross and follow me. Submit to me. Be humble and walk with me. We daily and willingly submit to the commands and the will of God. 
Jesus continues on in verse 24 and 25. He says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Christ almost explains what he means here when he says, Take up your cross. He explains and he says this. He's saying, I'm not being cruel to you. I'm not trying to take away your dreams and your desires and call you to submit to my will out of meanness. But he's saying, I'm doing it for you, for your own good. Because the world and all it promises is passing away. Think of it in this way. Let's say you were going to go on a cruise. I hear cruises are amazing primarily because of the food. Like all you can eat, chef-made stuff. Um, I, I like food, so it's tempting. But let's say you're going on this cruise, and you're down on the docks. People are about to board. I guess they board on the dock. I have no idea. Let's say they're, they're, they're gathering on the dock. They're about to board the ship, and the cruise is promising all sorts of good things. Chef-made food, all you can eat, swimming in the ocean or in a pool, all types of shows, child care where you can drop your kids off and be gone for the rest of the day, beautiful day trips, beautiful scenery. The cruise is offering you the good life. That's what the cruise is offering. And you go and you're on the docks and people are boarding on full of smiles and all of a sudden you look down at the waterline and in the hull of this ship you see this large gaping hole already taking on water the ship isn't listing yet it's not sinking yet it still looks steady it still looks secure and people are so excited about all the good things that this cruise ship promises they are just filing on board and you seeing this hole you begin to raise your voice saying don't get on the ship it's going to sink and those things that it's promising you cannot be fulfilled. You might make one stop or two stops. You might eat one meal or three meals. But eventually, this hole in the ship is going to sink. And that's the world that we're living in. The world promises all sorts of good things. Saying, you can be happy, you can be secure, you can be at peace, you can have riches, you can have fame, you can have everything that you want in this life. And it presents us to us in every social media post, in every movie, in everything. It's just saying, this is what this life is about. But in the whole, there's a whole. And all the good things that it promises cannot be fulfilled. Jesus is saying, what does it benefit if someone gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself and loses and forfeits his soul? The reason Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him is because the world cannot keep its promises. But Jesus can. And Jesus does. And he says in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And that of the father and his holy angels, Christ came with a cross 
the first time. But the next time he comes, he's coming with the crown. He's coming as the judge. And all the false promises of the world will be exposed. And the question is, is where will we be? Will we be with Christ or will we be on this sinking ship of the world? Man, we might attain everything that we dream of. But at the end of the day, if we do not have Christ, we lose it all. So Christ Community Church, let's not put wheels on the cross. Let's not say, I want Jesus and my dreams. But let's pursue Jesus as our dream, as our goal, as our desire. And let us find peace and purpose in him. Let's stand and pray.